pray together. Father, that is quite a confession we have just done. That everything that we need is in you. So we pray in these moments, having worship through singing, and worship through reading the scripture, and now we will worship with that truth through the hearing and studying of your word together. Your word never returns void. We trust it to do what it needs to do right now in each of our souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Well, more than likely on your way here this morning, you think you took the same route to get here that you took the last time you came here. Unless this is your first time. It's the same route you take every time. You go the same way. So, just to ask a question. Um, this morning when you drove, what was different or unique about the house, business, or landmark to your left at the third turn you make on the way to get here? <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> We all pass by things all the time, don't we? On the way to work, pass by things a thousand times. We pass by them so often that we no longer see them. They, they, they just become part of the background. Research psychologist named Robert Epstein, who is contending that our brains don't really function like computers where you can punch a button and have the image come up and to prove that he does no exercise. He calls a student in the front of the class, gives him a, a marker and for a whiteboard, says, I want you to draw the most detailed picture of a $1 bill that you can. He did that recently. Here was the result of one student's work. <laughs> we sort of laughed like he did. He pulled his pocket, pulled out a dollar bill, taped it to the whiteboard, and said, now try it again. And this time, this is what the student came up with. Now, that's being like us has seen a dollar bill a thousand times, but it no longer saw it. They were dealing with all this seen right past And the crystal in both those is the same. Overfamiliarity with anything can cause our minds and hearts to grow dull to it. Now, sometimes that's very helpful because, because if our minds were, were uh, seeing everything with the exact same level of intensity, we'd be overstimulated and couldn't function at all. But other times, it's really dangerous to begin to lose focus on something that is very, very important. And I just got to thinking, how, how does that work for us spiritually? We come to part of church and we come and we deal with big, important, biblical truths every time we come together. And we study them and we sing about them and we hear talks about them. We have group conversations about them. I just wonder if it's possible that over-familiarity with even those kinds of things can cause our minds and our hearts to grow dull to them. Paul Tripp says the worst kind of blindness is the capacity to look at wonders, things specifically designed to move you and producing you breathless amazement and not be moved by them anymore. It's the sad state of yawning in the face of glory. I suspect that most of us here this morning would identify ourselves as Christians. And we are those who are the, the people who bear the name of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Overfamiliarity, even with Jesus Christ, can cause our minds and our hearts to grow dull to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. It's not a new thing. In fact, I think one of the status stories in all the New Testament, the story of the church in Ephesus. 
this wonderful church that was was uh, taught deep and true by Paul, and they were uh, they were discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. They were pastored by Timothy. Had a remarkable impact on their culture. Many people came to saving faith in Christ. They planted churches. They had a legacy all parts across that part of the world. But yet, within one generation. The risen Lord Jesus, when he meets the Apostle John, says of this church, here's what he says of them in Revelation. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, that you cannot bear with those who do evil, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, church, you're busy. you got a lot of work and really hard at this church thing. And you really got, you're in the right side of a lot of really good things. But this is a problem that your mind and your heart have grown dull to me, have grown cold to me. This year, we here at Living Hope are celebrating our 40th anniversary. And by God's grace, we are a church that's strong and we have influence and we have a legacy, but we don't want our hearts to grow dull. So that's why we've been giving ourselves some time to walk through the articles of faith. Because what we believe begins to capture our hearts and works its way into our actions. So this morning, we want to focus our attention specifically on the article on Jesus Christ. Begin to look and see again and make sure that we're not growing dull to who He is. And as we do that, we will look at one of the most stunning descriptions of Jesus in all the Bible. It's in Colossians chapter 1. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you go ahead and turn there to Colossians chapter 1. Now, the church of Colossae was begun while Paul was in Ephesus. There's a guy in Ephesus uh, named Epaphras who came uh, and heard Paul preach the good news of Jesus. He trusted Christ and then he went back home told his friends and family in a church formed there. Well, some time has gone by, and now some dangerous teachers begin to threaten the church. There is a, a teacher has arisen in their midst who is tapping into some ancient superstitions they had in that part of the world about evil spirits. And he was advocating that Christians uh, add the practice of certain rituals and rites uh, for their protection. Uh, that Christ was good, Jesus might be quite big enough, quite strong enough, and so they need to add a little extra insurance. So when Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, he's going to remind them exactly who is this Jesus that you've committed yourself to. So in Colossians chapter 1, Chanley Gray is going to come and read our scripture for us. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? We're in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. 
But Paul says the issue here is this. Who is Jesus? And, and what does faith in him really look like? And he used here what may have been a poem or a hymn in some ways. But what he wants to do is he wants to capture their hearts again with the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus. Now, here's, here's what we need to do in the next few minutes. Some of you I know, maybe the first word you ever spoke was the name of Jesus. Or right there at the very beginning. You've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. And you've heard a lot of teaching about Jesus. You think about Jesus. You sing about Jesus. You have lots of stored up knowledge about Jesus. But for the next few moments, let's together as a family of faith step back a little bit. And by the power of the Spirit, let's look and see this Jesus with fresh eyes. Let's see him not through the lens of what we think we already know about him and we've already categorized. But what does this say about who Jesus really is? First thing Paul affirms for us is that Jesus is sovereign God. He pulls no punches. He says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not merely a spiritual teacher or a moral example, but Jesus Christ is God. And we explored the Trinity last week. Let's let's affirm this again. Jesus Christ is not God-like. He is not God-like. He is not the vice president of heaven. Jesus Christ is God himself. He says he is the image of the invisible God. And that reminds us of what the word says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, God's Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word image, imprint, sort of the same kings in those days. We have a signet ring, hot wax on official documents. They would press that into the hot wax and it would make an exact imprint of their official Seal. He's saying, you see, Jesus is an exact imprint of the very character of God. So our statement of faith says that Jesus Christ reveals God to us. Well, John chapter 1 tells us that. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And Jesus Himself made the exact same claim. He said, if anybody has seen Me, He said, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God. So any character trait or quality of God may be applied without qualification to Jesus Christ. So yes, he is holy and good and love and wise and just and all-knowing and all-powerful. Think about the miracles where Jesus stands in a storm and says one word and the storm stills. He has authority over nature where he stands with a sickness where someone's been born blind. He speaks the word with a touch and they can see again his authority over sickness, his authority over demons, where he can speak a word and they, they flee and move away. He has authority in all those places. Verse 17 says that Jesus is before all things, so he is eternal. There's never been a time when Christ was not. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He used the very name God himself gave to Moses when he was identifying himself. I am that I am. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anything else at all to prop him up or to make him real. 
And from this verse, for centuries, heretics and cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses had used this verse to insist that Jesus is simply a creative being, firstborn of all creation, that he is a son of God, one with heightened spiritual capacity. But firstborn here carries the idea, really, of first in rank or, or standing. So Jesus is, in fact, not just a Son of God, the Son of God. He is not just a God, but He is God Himself. So when when John encounters the risen Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, saw Him and His face shining like the sun in His full glory, and He fell before Him in awe because He was seeing the reality of the glory of God Himself. Jesus Christ is sovereign God. Let's follow that from the instance of the next thing Paul says. And that he says, Jesus is the creator, sustainer, and goal of the universe. As eternal God, Christ was active in the beginning in creation. It says there in verse 16, In Him all things were created. So when the Apostle John writes this gospel, he's thinking back about the beginning of Genesis 1, and here's what he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ is in the beginning of everything. All things were made through Him. And Paul says, what are those all things? All things visible. What's that include? Well, that includes things like aardvarks and blue whales and forests and every element in the periodic table of elements and hummingbirds and caterpillars and volcanoes and glaciers and the peak of, of, of Everest in the Himalayas and the depth of the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, subatomic particles, and the 1,284 planets that astronomers just announced two weeks ago they just discovered. Hey, we didn't know that those guys were there. You know who knew they were there? Christ, the Son of God. Set them spinning. And then they got all the people in the world, billions and billions of people. Every one of them has a unique fingerprints, a unique iris prints in their eyes. Each one unique, all things visible, then all things invisible. He lists in their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are ranks of heavenly beings, angels and cherubim and seraphim and others that we know nothing about at all. And they're saying that there are vistas in heaven. We can only imagine all of those things in the mind and by the word of Christ, who is the creator. And he keeps it all spinning. We're back in Hebrews, he's the radiance of God's glory. But it also says in Hebrews 1 that by him he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's what we know for our basic studies of science. And the basic building block of all matter in the universe will be called the atom. And in the atom, there are protons and neutrons and electrons, and they're all spinning around together in the, in the nucleus of this atom. And we know bad things happen when they begin to fall apart. We know that that, that doesn't really work all that well, so we want to keep them together. But here's the thing. Scientists tell us there's space in there between them. The space between the, the protons and neutrons and electrons at the atomic level, keeping everything together. I'm here to tell you this morning that space has a name, and the name is Jesus Christ. He's sustaining everything. If for a moment he stopped, then everything we know to be real would disintegrate into nothingness because he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he's the goal of it all. In verse 16, it says, by him and for him. 
that everything in the universe, every star, every comet, every blossom, every bird chirp, every sea breeze, every skylight down in Mammoth Cave, every person with every heartbeat and every breath and every word and every kiss and every relationship, it's all heading towards Jesus, every bit of it. Now, let's just stop right there just a second. And when we're close to being done with seeing who Jesus is, let's just stop and remind ourselves of something here. Just looking at this. Jesus Christ is not just some Middle Eastern dude in a row walking around spouting off little pithy religious statements. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the very Lord of glory. He's the king over everything. But that's not all. Jesus Christ also, the word says, is the head of his body, the church. The church, the gathering, Jesus put together described as the body of Christ. What a great metaphor. Our bodies, human bodies, have all kinds of parts that come together to make up make up the body. So every Christian placed in the body, everyone precious, everyone necessary, but there's only one head in the body. Now in the human body, you look at the head, and it's the way we process life. How we speak or hear or smell, it's where our brain is located, it's the control center of our, our thoughts and our experiences. We are dependent on what's going on in our head to actually have what we call a life. And so we say Jesus Christ is the head of the body. We're saying the church is utterly dependent on him for the sustenance of its life. Okay, that sounds okay, but let's remind ourselves what we're talking about here. This morning, across the globe, there are thousands upon thousands of churches gathering and they're speaking and worshiping in thousands of diverse languages and under all kinds of cultures and political systems and philosophies. Uh, they're in places uh, where some are open and, and public and some are forbidden to gather and some gather under threat of death. There are people who gather in cathedrals and others under banyan trees in the bush to worship and others that are in storefronts and pulling out folding chairs and others are in apartments in mega cities like Jakarta and others are in prison. They're worshiping. And some use a liturgy where it's really formal as they go along in their worship and some just kind of whatever's going to happen that morning by the Spirit happens and there's dancing and shouting and all of those together are, if they are the true church, gather under one confession. We say only what is it? It is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say it together again. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of all that. Can you think of any other organization, any other person that has this kind of influence, this kind of global sweep, this kind of control that all those churches unified under the risen and reigning Christ. And he's the authority over every aspect for every true church. Their mission, their message, their priorities, their money, their relationships. Listen, the head of the church is not its pastors, it's not its longtime members, it's not its money people, or its influences in the community. The supreme and sole head of the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself. He's over it all. But this is where do all those people in those churches come from? And the next thing he says, he says that Jesus Christ is preeminent in his new creation. Now, verse 18, he says, he is the beginning. The beginning of what? We're already talking about creation. Okay, it's the one. He is the firstborn from the dead. Okay? That's an obvious reference to the resurrection. That's not first in time because there were other resurrections. Even in the Bible, we see those. This, again, carries the idea of being, being number one in, in rank or uniqueness. Jesus' resurrection is unique. He's the only person who's ever raised from the dead and stayed alive. He's still alive to this moment. 
His resurrection defeated the key enemies of humanity, sin and death. So something is going on. It's leading to something. So Paul describes later in 1 Corinthians 15, here's what he writes. He says, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there was the beginning of time when there was a man named Adam who chose to rebel against God in sin and brought death into the world. But now he's saying there's, there's another one, a Christ who's been resurrected and something else is going on here. Here's what's happening. By his resurrection, Jesus is the second Adam. He's starting everything new. So the beginning is the beginning of a new creation. A new creation with a new humanity. Another place in the Bible describes Jesus saying he once had the firstborn among many brothers who was creating a family of resurrected people. People who once were spiritually dead but are now alive in their souls who are sharing in his resurrection life. Who are those people? St. Corinthians 5.17 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Any person who has trusted Christ in a relationship with Christ is a new creation. So he's beginning this whole new world in that way. And in that new world, he says, Jesus is free. He's center stage, he's spotlight for his resurrection people, which means he's first. He's first in our affections, first in our time, first in our thoughts and our opinions and our marriages and our families and our professions and our money and our enjoyment and our sense of beauty and entertainment and all those things. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is true and is this kind of power, everything changes. Everything's different if there is, in fact, a Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. Now, this, we're looking at this overwhelmingly majestic Christ, right? He's the sovereign God, the creator of everything, the sustainer of all things, the head of the body, the initiator of a new creation. But this one, and we're going to bring it down to us, it says that Jesus is God with us in the flesh. The one is fully God and fully divine is also fully human. So John 1.14 says, you know this, the Word that was eternal, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What this is? This is Bethlehem. This is Christmas night. When the eternal God of glory somehow was born in a little, squalling, helpless baby. Our affirmations of faith say this, we believe in Jesus Christ, the one only eternal Son of God, who while fully divine became a man, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now we affirm that, but we don't explain it. How did that happen? God did it. How did that happen? It's a mystery. We see it. Come behold the wondrous mystery. God could have stayed distant and clean, but God the Son came here to our world, and He really lived here on earth. He came in a specific time, a specific culture, a specific place. He knew the, all the good things of life, the sweetness of family, and hands callous from satisfying work. He knew love and, and a good meal and laughter together with friends. But he also knew the mess and the brokenness and the weariness and the disappointment and the pain and the confusion and the sin and the temptation. He knew all of it. And with all of that, we affirm 
that he lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4 says this, Jesus was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted, just as we are. Yet, not one instance of selfishness. Not one instance of saying, I, there's something I said I wish I hadn't said. Not one instance of bending even slightly God's rules, yet without sin. Jesus Christ lived a human life the way it was meant to be lived. In relationship with His Heavenly Father, in love with others, with joy and purpose. He was perfect. So Jesus Christ, in addition to all these other things, is supreme as a human being. Now, why is all of this even necessary? Because Jesus Christ is the only Redeemer and Restorer. You heard the story. God's good design for us was to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, to submit Him, to bring Him glory. But then every single human being decided to rebel and go their own way. I want to be on the throne of my own life, and I want to define my own happiness, and that's sin. It separates us from God. It makes us guilty. It puts us under a death sentence. We're looking for eternity in that way. The Bible says in lots of different ways, it says it is that all have sinned, and the ways of that sin is death. We, all of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, left to ourselves. We are in trouble. There's no way out. There's no remedy for this that we can come up with. Nothing we can do. But after the Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins, our two most beautiful words in all the Bible, it just says, but God. We were dead, but God. Wasn't done with the story yet. But what did God do? We know it. God so loved the world that He gave His only and on the cross, Romans 5 tells us, God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet rebels, yet selfish, yet insisting on our own way, yet doing our own thing, Christ died for us. He died in our place. Do you see Him there? See Him. Perfect beautiful, all-glorious Son of God. Strapped, spread eagle to a cross at the town garbage dumps surrounded by criminals. You see him there? The nails through his hands and through his feet. You see the crown of thorns crammed down on his head. See him gasping for breath, pulling his body up on those spikes. See him bleeding out. Why? For you. And for me. We believe that Jesus died as a substitutionary death in order to serve as the only mediator between God and man. He was bearing the penalty we incurred. He died the death we should have died in our place. New creation requires a resurrection. Resurrection requires a death, and that death was either going to be ours or his. And Jesus said, I'll die. I'll die for those sinners. 
let a blessed look at them and hear what he said. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed by pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Glorious Jesus becomes our Redeemer, but that bloody cross is the center of His plan for a new creation because the same death and resurrection that provides for our sin is fixing this old, tired, dead world. He promised to restore it. He said in Revelation, He said, Look, I am making all things new. He said, Restore all the mess back the way God intended it from the very beginning. He points to the day. When every broken thing will be restored, every sickness healed, every wrong made right, every sad thing coming true. And in that world, Jesus will be at the center and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And in that day, we will sing the song we already sang this morning, only it won't be just us. It'll be every Christian who's ever known Christ throughout the sweep of all of human history and all the ages and all the cherubim and all the seraphim and all those in heaven. And this one thundering song will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Receive glory and power and honor and blessing and might. Worthy is He. Yes. Look at Him. Look and see Him. Be stunned. Now look, we've just done a sketch. We've not even gotten into all the things Jesus is. We've just done a, a sketch of things. Look at Him and be stunned because all of this is wrapped up in what we mean when we simply say the name Jesus. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Paul flips the spotlight now. In verse 21, he says, and you, you, this is who Jesus is. Now, you, what, what's changed? Well, because of who Jesus is, you can be, first of all, he says, reconciled to God. You were, verse 21, you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You know what sin is? Sin is a declaration of war against God. God, I don't want you to be in charge. I want to be in charge. And it sets us apart from Him. But on the cross, Jesus willingly stepped into the firing line and sacrificed Himself to end the war between us and God. So 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what he's doing. He's bringing us to God. So when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he means the war is over. Reconciliation can happen. Forgiveness of sins comes, and we're putting a new relationship with him. Not to get along a little bit. No longer enemies, but we're made his family. We're made his children of God Himself. How do you possibly, how that possibly become real for you? 
You do that by repenting of sin and trusting that just Jesus is who he said he was and that what he did was necessary for you. So Romans chapter 5 says this, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Lord. By faith, we have peace. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We repent of sin and we trust him. Listen, life, I'm do you? Have you trusted this Christ to be your only hope, to be your only Savior? I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? Do you like Jesus? Do you have affection for Jesus? Do you have emotions for Jesus? Have you repented of sin and trusted Jesus alone? You can be reconciled. Not only that, he says, you can, we can be because of Jesus Christ is, we can be transformed in holiness. In order that, it says, in order that, so the goal of Jesus' life and mission is not to save us from hell. No, it's to transform us into a people, he says, who are holy and blameless and above reproach. Let's be real clear here. A relationship with this kind of Jesus is not meant to turn us into nice people. Jesus didn't die on a cross to make a bunch of nice Sunday morning, church-going, nice neighbor, good neighbor, right-voting, conservative kind of people. That's not what he died for. It's not intended to be there. It's supposed to fundamentally change us. From the inside out, this relationship with Jesus, Jesus always welcomes us with open arms. Come as you are, but he never, ever intends to leave us that way. First Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. The new has come, and the new is supposed to look a whole lot like Jesus. So we see, if we see this is who Jesus is, and we respond to him and repentance and faith, and we're reconciled to God, and we're transformed by him, how does that begin to shape our lives? Here's the deal. He is in verse 23. Here's our calling. Our calling is to hold fast in our faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the challenge. He says, continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith. He reminds us of the object of our faith is Jesus and his gospel. He reminds us of the point of it is to reconcile us and transform us. But it's one thing to notice here. It's another thing to, to live it. It's possible, really possible, to be over-familiar with Jesus and make Jesus a dull religious thing we're familiar with and we can sort of outline we're pressed to. We can keep it in our mind, have it never get to our hearts. It's possible to yawn in the face of glory. Or, or, Jesus Christ can become the singular passion of our souls. The, the beauty that we never get over, the love that wrecks our hearts, he can become the blazing sun at the center of the solar system of our lives around which everything we are orbits and in which everything finds its meaning. That's what he wants for us. But understand, that kind of faith doesn't grow in an hour on Sunday morning. It is all for purpose, day after day moment by moment, decisions and choices. So here are the energy required. He says, be stable, be steadfast, not shifting. Now in our culture, we live in today, a focus on Jesus like this is sure to be dismissed as naive, or to be ridiculed, or to be ignored, or attacked. 
Here's what I think he's calling to do. You hold fast to Jesus. When the attacks on those who love and follow Jesus come, and they will come, and they are coming more than we know now, you hold fast to Jesus. When you're pressured to downplay Jesus, and they say, oh, don't worry about that Jesus thing when you're thinking about your identity or your gender or your marriage or anything else, when you're tempted to downplay Jesus, you hold fast to Jesus. When you're presenting alternatives to Jesus for your joy or your meaning in life, you hold fast to Jesus. And when life, when life punches you and rips you and leaves you on the ground and leaves you crying and weeping and wondering why, you hold fast to Jesus. Why? Because this Jesus, this Jesus, sovereign God, creator, sustainer, and goal of the universe, head of his body, God in the flesh, the one is the redeemer and reconciler. This Jesus, listen, he's worth it. He's worth whatever we need to go through to know him and follow him. He's worth it. So this morning, see Jesus, yes. Maybe you're this morning and you need to be rescued. Jesus, come trusting today. Don't go another day just knowing him in your head, but not trusting him in your heart. Be transformed by Jesus. Be stirred by Jesus. Be stirred Feel the way he did when you first trusted him. And you hold fast to Jesus. Because this, brothers and sisters, this is what it means. Now, Lord Jesus, you've made yourself clear to us by your word. You've shown us who you are. Lord, when we see that, Just walk away. Something's got to change. Help us, Lord God, to look at this and then glance down because the glory is too bright. Help us to see who you are in this moment, wherever we are, individually across this room. Help us to respond to you as we need to. As our rescuer, our redeemer, as a transformer. Maybe, Lord, we need to come and confess. You've gotten a little dull with the fullness of all that you are. Help us by this moment, by the Spirit, to respond to who you show us that you really are. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, you come and pray.